Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the impassioned Eddie Matthews. Welcome to Rationalish. This is a podcast episode on the Banshees of Inner Sheeran. Inner Sheeran. Should we just spend Inner the whole episode trying to pronounce this correctly? This is a podcast episode on the Banshees of Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> uh please the worst the low there were all there for being the greatest show of all time there were a lot of low points in game of thrones particularly in season eight um but maybe the lowest point of all of game of thrones is when ed sheeran pops up as like a as like a you know knight of lannister and then is singing a ukulele song with the other knights i'm like this is bad it's not the type of show where you can really pull off a cameo. Like, I feel no. like that is just like really, yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I hadn't heard from you in a while and I thought uh, maybe we've been rowing and I didn't know it. So I was, uh, <laughs> was curious. We rowing? <laughs> we rowing? We rowing? Uh, I didn't is, know we were So rowing. I was going to do two, two content warnings for this. One was going to be a spoiler warning in general. So if you haven't seen this movie, don't listen to this episode. And the yeah. second was going to be an Irish accent warning. <laughs> If you're offended by right. bad Irish accents, also recommend that you don't listen to this podcast episode. So it it would be impossible. <laughs> it would be impossible to talk about this movie without spoiling it. You know, I was trying to like you could maybe talk about and then like do a list of other related movies or something, but yeah, it would basically be impossible. Um, and we're gonna talk about Andor at the end, right? For people who, if you have seen Andor but not the Banshees of Inner Sheeran, you can skip ahead. Otherwise, listen to the whole thing. Yeah, is there a single other person listening to this podcast that has our taste? Like, <laughs> seen both um, of those things. <laughs> yeah, just a Martin McDonough film and like a big, you know, Tony Tony Gilroyized Star Wars Disney Plus show. We'll have to hear back from the listeners yeah. if anyone has seen both these shows. I, I don't know of anyone personally uh, who mm. has seen both of these besides us two, but, you know, it, I'm sure it's happened. So, to, let me give you the, um, I don't know if this is pulled from Wikipedia or just from Google. Google. Google summary, Banshees of Inisherin. I'm sure it's the, you know. The graph they give everybody. On a remote island off the coast of Ireland, Padraig is devastated when his buddy Calm suddenly puts an end to their lifelong friendship. With help from his sister and a troubled young islander, Padraig sets out to repair the damaged relationship by any means necessary. However, as Calm's resolve only strengthens, he soon delivers an ultimatum that leads to shocking consequences. Set in uh, 1923, in this fictional uh, Irish island off the uh, coast of what I take is like the, the north coast of Ireland. Um, so think, you know, 1923, horse and buggies, everybody's walking everywhere to the local pub. Um, the main kind of sets in the film are, uh, you know, Colin Farrell's house, Padraig's house where he lives with his sister and Colm's house, which is on this, really beautiful little inlet um, on the beach and then the local pub. And that's pretty much it. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, settings for this film. Um, it's yeah. Kind of about the falling apart of a decades long friendship 
and the reasons behind it and about going your separate ways, but you're stuck together on a small Irish Island. Um, what else can we say about this film, Morgan, as far as setting the scene for those who haven't maybe seen it or come across it? Yeah, I was just going to say outside of like the actual film itself, I think the reason a lot of people were excited, and I'm sure we can talk about this in the general discussion was about kind of the involvement of the two primary actors, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, uh, reprising not the same roles, but reprising a, a partnership from In Bruges, which we've talked about before on the podcast, um, and also written and directed by Martin McDonough, who has also made appearances on the podcast many, many a time in our discussions. So that was sort of why we were so excited about this going in, um, and I think why people who sought this out sought it out, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think Martin McDonough, to get indie films made and with a wide or decently wide distribution these days, they kind of have to come from some sort of like auteur, you know, or be marketed as a film by blank, you know? I think to, uh, the fact that Brendan Gleeson was on SNL promoting this as like the lead performer is pretty crazy. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. <laughs> yeah. So this is Martin McDonough's fourth film uh, in Bruges, which we did a whole episode on our favorite film. Came out in 2008. That was his debut as a writer-director. Seven Psychopaths, four years later in 2012. Which I think is, is one of the most underrated movies. I love that movie. Uh, it's a great three, movie. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Which many listeners might have heard of. If you've heard of one of his films, it might be... It's either In Bruges or Three Billboards. Because uh, Three Billboards was nominated for a lot of Academy Awards. Francis McDormand won Best Actress for it. Um, mm -hmm. Sam Rockwell won Best Supporting Actor. So that kind of got a lot of hype. It was, uh, it ended up losing Best Picture, but it was in the mix. Uh, so that came out in 2017, and this is uh, his first film since that. So it seems to be on this four to five year uh, cycle when it comes to new movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, the way he writes, I mean, he's a playwright by profession or by background, and I think those types of movies take a lot of iteration to kind of put together um you have to really you can't just kind of pop them out like you would a baby that maybe yeah, yeah exactly yeah that's like nine months come on this is at least twice as difficult so <laughs> exactly um uh, so let's uh according to google uh, of this little profile I'm looking at in addition to the nice. Google summary of the film. 98% Rotten Tomatoes. 8.2 IMDb. 87% Metacritic. Um, I think you could say that it was widely widely regarded. Widely regarded. You know, yes. um, for any fans of The Ringer, Sean Fennessy uh, did a whole episode on Banshee Venture and then interviewed Martin McDonough. Sean Fennessy said it was one of his favorite films of the year. Uh, it got a pretty good review of uh, it in the New York Times. They're kind of like, this is a nice film. Um, I didn't, I was kind of just skimming through It'll it. It'll have at least, at least three Oscar noms, if not more than that. Acting and supporting acting and writing. writing. Yeah. Yeah. I was underwhelmed. I didn't really like it that much. Really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, that we did so for the listeners. We have not talked about this at all. We, were we haven't talked about it at all. Saw it. I think it. 
Okay. Well, let if, me hear if, your thoughts first. I um I I love Ireland. I haven't spent a ton of time there, but I've I've Dang, you think this movie disgraced all of Ireland? I've been there twice. I'm an expert. <laughs> no, I like I really enjoy Ireland. I enjoy Irish culture. I have Irish friends, you know. Our our good buddy Johnny is kind of uh I don't know, he I guess he was my He's like an honorary gate- Irishman. I yeah, think. yeah, he's kind of my gateway drug to mm. Ireland. And so I met a bunch of friends through him and For most Texas people that's Guinness, but it's good Irish that folks. you had your own your own thing as well. <laughs> yeah. And so like I I really enjoy these sweeping Irish vistas, you know, so all the like cinematography in the film, I was like all about, I loved it. You know, it was the cinematography. So I will say, I think this is his best directed movie kind of without question. Uh, I think it's, it's beautiful to watch, which is I would not usually like, usually yeah. you watch his movies and you're like, okay, yeah. Like he's primarily a screenwriter and the directing comes second. But I thought that this movie was actually very well directed. If that makes sense. Yeah. I would agree yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, excited i kind of didn't know i uh, here's a better way of putting it i didn't know that i knew what to expect going in i was like oh okay um i've seen the trailer i kind of know the setup but there's gonna be a lot of stuff that i'm taken aback by or surprised by because in martin mcdonough movies there's always like twists or things you didn't see coming or just incredibly witty dialogue or like just stuff that you just savor and it rewards returning to over and over. So I'm like, I'm in for a lot of that. And that wasn't yeah. in the trailer and that wasn't in the description. So I'm going to get a lot of that that I'm not expecting. Mm-hmm. I got a movie that was pretty much two hours of everything I saw in the trailer. And <laughs> that bummed me out, man. That's fair. That's fair. There was, it's especially when you, I do think it suffers a bit from, kind of the anticipation of being a Martin McDonough movie. And it's especially the fact that it brought back Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell to reprise their roles, uh, not necessarily their roles, but to reprise their re- working relationship with Martin McDonough, um, where you kind of are already holding it to such high standards that it's going to be difficult to kind of reach that plateau. That's fair. Uh, perhaps, you know, I remember when um, I first saw Django Unchained in the theater, I was kind of like really into it for the first half and then thought he just really threw away the second half and kind of shot the bed and the ending. So wait, was you're saying nonsense. you liked the portion when he was still under slavery? You didn't like the portion? No. And then upon revisiting and rewatching Django, I think it's, I don't, I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's excellent. You know, I really enjoy it. And yeah. I, and I had the same uh, reaction to um, Grand Budapest Hotel. I saw it in theaters. I was really anticipating it. And I was kind of like slightly underwhelmed. And then every time I rewatch it now, I'm like, this is a perfect movie, perfectly executed. And I moved. And so I'm not saying that this, film can't grow on me over time but i was underwhelmed to a degree that eclipses those previous two examples you know so it would have to really grow on me i feel like to to get anywhere close to the my enjoyment of the previous three films you know sure so you think it for you it's the of the four films that he's put out besides the um six shooter kind of short film you would say it's your least favorite after one viewing easily 
Easily. Interesting. Interesting. Easily. Okay. So I would say um, in Bruges, obviously, mm. numero uno. Yeah. Seven Psychopaths, definitely sure. number two. Yep. Three Billboards is like a comfortable number three, but okay. I think it's like a good solid uh, entry into his ouvoir, you know? Mm. Yeah. And this one, I'm like, well, we'll get into it. Did you like it? I did. I did like it in a different way. I think the best equivalent, I mean, this might even make it uh, more difficult for like listeners to follow, but I think that the closest analog is something like Seven Psychopaths rather than maybe, I think the, the main comparisons I've seen is like through billboards because maybe they're the more kind of dramatic takes. But I thought the kind of spattering of ideas and the kind of drawn out. Spattering of the, fingers. Exactly. Was more like a, if you flip the drama and comedy in seven psychopaths and you made it 80% kind of dramatic um, and 20% comedy instead of 80% comedy, 20% drama. Um, But okay. So I'll tell you what I did like about it. I thought it was, for me, it was a pretty clear thematic retelling of kind of a, like a civil war, like whether you want to make it about the actual Irish civil war, which is kind of the backdrop for the movie or you want to talk about it being like, you know, a relational civil war between two people and actually have it be more about like the breakup of friends. Um, When I was watching it, it seemed clear to me that it was kind of a metaphor for the Irish civil war and the idea that, you know, you can't actually win in conflict. And, you know, I think Brendan Cleason's character trying to kind of unilaterally dissolve this union whether it be like the state of ireland or you know a relationship um and then things kind of slowly falling apart even though he's the ideologue in this situation um and then it kind of corrupting the entire relationship and i think that the commentary on how you know the the male psyche is is linked to violence being you know the alternative or the point of action that we jump cutting off our own fingers or resorting to arms in a civil war. I thought there was some really great kind of parallels there with just enough humor to sustain the metaphor for the runtime. That being said, I think all of his other movies are much more rewatchable. Even Three Billboards, which I is my least favorite of the other three by quite a ways. Um, this movie, I was supposed to go see this again with some friends and I like, I was like, I can't really do it. Like it's so intense and like emotional i was like i really don't want to see this again for like quite a while even though i did enjoy it um Mm. so i I think that the actual movie and the experience itself it really did affect me but it certainly if we're holding it up to the standards of the other movies that he's put out it had more of a like the metaphor didn't hit home as much on like a personal level and i think maybe that's on purpose um because it's more about kind of civil war and these weightier concepts uh, than something like guilt or redemption or things that are kind of more universal. Um, but yeah, those are just my my initial thoughts. Yeah, so why don't we give a quick like plot summary, just kind of bullet point of a uh, list of what happens. So first scene of the film, uh, Padraig, Colin Farrell's character, who's kind of just like a dunce, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he says he's dull. Like, that's part of the the whole justification for why he doesn't want to be friends anymore is because he's basically an idiot. Yeah. And so um, we find out from, you know, the first 10 minutes that uh, Brendan Gleeson's character, Calm, who's 
Uh, a man of the arts, you know, he's a musician, he's a violinist, he writes music, his small, you know, one bedroom house is um, decorated with old kind of theater masks. Sweet and... ocean view, though. Like, Excellent like, right ocean on view. the beach. What, quite a property on this island. Um, so yeah, he's kind of just like a, a man of learning. And uh, especially for the island, I think within this community. In oh, yeah. Particular. yeah. The only uh, it seems like the only like educated people on the island are Brendan Gleason and then um, Podrick's sister. Yeah. Uh, whose name escapes me. Let's see. C- continue. I'll find it. So uh, Siobhan. Siobhan, Siobhan, of course. Siobhan. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So. Um, yeah. in the first, you know, in the opening in an opening scene. We find out that, um, you know, the village gossip is that Calm doesn't want to be friends with Padraig anymore. And they were best, best buds before. Um, and so it's very much like, you know, Calm wakes up one day and says, it's, this is it. And so it's kind of like the day before they're best friends. And then today, not a, not a word to each other. You know? Maybe he just don't like you no more. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, oh, sorry, I gotta get this Irish woman out of my house. Sorry for that. Yeah, get out of here. That's, the first, apologies. Uh, thank you. The first 30 to 45 minutes is just Padraig being confused about why, uh, essentially, Calm is broken up with him and trying to talk to him about it and get to the bottom of it. And it's just him going to Calm's house and him going to the pub and then him going home in just confusion. And we have to like sit through this for 45 minutes. So sorry, gripe number one. Um, and then finally they kind of sit down with each other uh, outside of the pub, uh, you know, while the waves are crashing on a, on a gorgeous Irish day. And yeah, Calm essentially tells him that, uh, you know, I want to write this song I want to produce music. I want to do something meaningful with whatever time I have left. And you can't stop talking to me and you can't stop chit chatting. And it's always aimless, just chitter chatter, you know? And so it's distracting me from what I feel like is a more meaningful use of my time. And he's like, I I don't, I'm not angry towards you. I don't hate you. I just want you to leave me alone. And, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. I'm, yeah. Sorry, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah. So well, wait, which portion of, did you want to talk to me about? The... I just feel like there's a lot of meaningful things that I'm trying to do in my life, and you keep <laughs> calling me, wanting to visit me, wanting to do this podcast. And it's distracting me from writing my next novel. It's distracting me from reading. It's distracting me from the world of ideas. And I just, I can't see this friendship moving forward. I personally think you should cut off your fingers (laughs) as a testament to uh, the severity of, uh, and the authenticity of your threat. So, so basically, (laughs) so basically after they have that conversation outside of the pub, um, Padraig remains confused, but thinks he can win him over, right? 
so he continues to you know pester him at his house and is just not getting the message and so finally calm says i've had enough um if you talk to me one more time i'm gonna cut my finger off and give it to you uh as as a sign of how serious i am about this ending this friendship you know yeah yeah I'm going to take me shoes. Like classic <laughs> yes. finger thread. Very common. As one does. Um, if, you, if you actually, if you visit Ireland, there's just like most people, I think the average number of fingers is like seven because of these specific types of threats that yeah. have uh, had various successes in the past. Here's another one of my um, critiques of this film. Don't put that in the trailer. That's the big <laughs> reveal. True. I feel like they that was probably, if it was up to... Martin McDonough, he would not have had that in the trailer because that would have been a you know a great twist. But once you threaten to cut off your fingers, you know they're going to get cut off. Like this is in a, a Martin McDonough film, yeah, exactly. I mean, in any like really, it's like a Chekhov's gun situation. Like you can't have some weird threat happen and then not follow through. Like it, at that point, it's not a shock when he does it, at least to me. Absolutely. So there's still enough suspense between when he tells him that when he actually cuts the first you know i think it's his index finger when he cuts the first finger off and throws it you know at Patrick's store so there's so i am more engaged and more kind of on the edge of my seat in act two i guess it would be but i still know it's coming because it was in the trailer so i'm like i don't doubt that that's where this is going you know sure and then uh okay so to resume the plot summary, uh, the finger comes off, he throws it at him, and, uh, you know, Padraig Colin Farrell's character is horrified at mm. first, but then is kind of like, well, <laughs> how do we know, that? no, no, that he's serious? And his sister's like, are you insane? You know, like, leave him alone. Like, don't ever yeah. talk to him again. Like, yeah. And then... Uh, Brendan Gleeson, I think in the original threat, he says he's going to continue cutting his fingers off until he gets the message right. Sure. And that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Because like continues. Yeah. 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 Padre continues to to bug him. You know, after having conversations with you know the only other friend he has, who's kind of you know even uh, you know more of a dunce than he is kind of, sure. uh, you know, I forget Dominic, I think, uh, yeah, Dominic, a guy who's just not, not got much going in his life and is also being abused by his father and just kind of a dark, uh, thing. So Dominic's like, he's like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe he just wants you to stand up for yourself. And, you know, in the pub the other day, when you confronted him, he said you were uh, more interesting than you've ever have been. So maybe you just need to confront him, you know? Yeah. So Colin Farrell's like, oh, that's a good idea. And so he goes con- <laughs> and confronts him. And then that leads to more fingers being cut off. And uh, and then Padraig, like, instead of acquiescing, he goes, you know, something just breaks in his brain. And so he threatens to burn down his house. And then kind of the, the final major, you know, event in the film is Padraig burning down Brendan Gleeson's house with him in it, but then uh, Calm, you know, escapes his house, and then they have this kind of conversation on the beach, and, you know, he's still bleeding from his mutilated hand somehow. I guess it's just movie magic. And he's just saying, like, I don't blame you, you know, for 
me cutting off my fingers. It's all fine. And Poddick's like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, that's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, you cut off your own fingers. Guys. Yeah, and he's just like, I'm not, like, he's like, no, this isn't done between us. Like, I'm taking this to the grave kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if I recall correctly, that's kind of how the film ends. Like, basically, after that conversation, they kind of, I don't know what, I don't know where Calm sleeps that night, but he certainly doesn't sleep in his ashen house, you know? Sure. Uh, I, I should say Siobhan. Yeah, yeah his sister leaves, so that's kind of a big plot event. Um, Dominic, the kind of the dunce who's uh, Colin Farrell's friend, uh, drowns himself in the lake. Uh, there's a there's kind of a really nice moment when even though Colm refuses to speak with Padraig, Padraig gets beat up gets beat up by the local cop, and Colm kind of takes care of him and gets him home. It's kind of a sweet moment, but um, you know, Calm does finish the song. He finished uh, the song that the titular uh, "Banshees of Inisherin" is the name of the song that Calm was writing. That that he insisted that he had to write and couldn't be friends with Podrick anymore because he was focusing on his music, and so that was you know one of the products of him focusing on his music. It was a nice little you know medley that they we got to hear them play in the pub, but. Um, yeah, man. I don't know. I think everything you said is valid about it being an allegory for the Irish Civil War and kind of how, you know, this country is mutilating itself, but not in a in a way that was in any way productive, in any way that wasn't just self-destructive, you know? Yeah. So as all, well, maybe not all civil wars, but as many civil wars are, um I mean, I guess you could say it's kind of interesting to see a film about male friendship and the collapse of male friendship. It's not a subject that typically gets covered a ton. Um, I, I think every there, there's so many, I think, rewarding things about Martin McDonough movies usually that everything is not what it seems, you know? Yeah. And this film, it seems like everything is what it seems. <laughs> That's fair. No, I mean, there's definitely not a ton of surprises. I think it's it's the most. And, and like, what's the up? Is it just theatrical? Like, it's the most obviously adopted from, like, a play setting. I think of his films. Like, there's, there's a heavy emphasis on the themes, kind of over the plot or over any sort of like realism. Not that the characters don't seem real, but that the contrivances of the story are kind of driven by the theme rather than by anything that seems realistic, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I assume that Marvin McDonough would think that this comment I'm about to say is like massively condescending, but I don't mean it to be condescending when I say that. I think, <laughs> well, this... you know, he's a listener. so you better be good. <laughs> I think this would be an excellent play. I would love to see this as a as a theater production. I think it would work really well, you know. Yeah, no, I don't I think totally it. Agree. I don't think it makes a good film. Because uh, I I don't think I think it Bruges is cinematic because that city is really stunning and we don't see it on film. I've never seen it on film before, you know. Mm-hmm. And it it like the the city of Bruges is such a character in that movie, and yeah. it. I think it's cinematic as a result of that. 
And, uh, you know, Ray Fiennes is like, he, he's just cinematic. And he, he makes any film cinema by virtue of his performance. And so, yes. and then I think Three Billboards is very cinematic because of, um, I mean, I guess you could, you could get a stage big enough to house those three billboards, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very pastoral and very violent and very compelling um, of a of a setting as well, and so I think Three Billboards earns its kind of uh, cinema um, uh, merit. Um, and Seven Psychopaths is like arguably his most cinematic film because it's like a western essentially. And it's, yeah, and it's very fun and very all over the place. They're in the desert, they're in LA, they're, you know, kind of in many different um, settings. So I think that's one thing that kind of characterizes his last two films now. So like Three Billboards and now this, they're not very fun. <laughs> like they, yeah. they're, I would say they're good movies. They're not fun. Like they're not great rewatchable movies. You don't necessarily want to go back and revisit them quickly after the first time. Um, I still think there's a very good movie. I think this is one of the better versions of this type of very thematically heavy character-driven films. But when you're comparing it to something like In Bruges, which is enjoyable on so many levels, it's just like a fun watch. And it also has the like strong thematic core built within an entertaining film. And then I would say Seven Psychopaths is entertaining and then has some of that, but that's where it kind of doesn't quite compete with In Bruges. Whereas the last two the the like level of enjoyability and fun has really dropped off quite dramatically in his films. Um, and I, I don't know why necessarily. I mean, people, the critics in particular seem to enjoy this more. I think this is probably going to be better received than in Bruges, but I think that's just incorrect. I still think this is a good movie, but I think they're rewarding something that is not necessarily even more difficult to put together. I think it's much more difficult to come up with something that is both entertaining and thematically weighty than just the latter. Yeah. I don't know. It pains me to say this because I really like Martin McDonough's work. Like he's my favorite director, maybe writer director. I don't know. Mm. He's top three for sure. Yeah. 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 So I really want to like this movie. Um, can't make the case that it's a good movie though because as i'm thinking about it again i feel like i remember i don't know i'd have to revisit it i guess a couple times to be sure but i'm going through everything i'm remembering from my first viewing of it and it's like I don't see what I would be rewarded by that I really missed that first time unless I really educated myself on the Irish Civil War and then watched it from that lens. I mean, I think that's a rewarding way to do it, but usually his themes are more universal than that. Like, sure, it could speak to a particular conflict or event, but it also can apply to many other circumstances. Um, and I think that's what this is meant to be. It could be war. It could be you know, a relationship or some. I just don't think it's as as entertaining or insightful as some of his other stuff. I like, think what that, is it saying about civil war that you wouldn't have kind of known or yeah. like, felt about civil war prior to seeing the film? 
you mentioned when you watched it, you were really kind of like, it sounded like you were emotionally moved by it. And that's why you didn't want to go see it again. It's because you're like, oh, that was a heavy emotional experience I went through. I don't want to do that again right now. And I just yeah. wasn't, I wasn't even emotionally moved really at all by it. I think because we didn't really get any sort of view into Brendan Gleeson's depression. Like, did he lose a child? What is leading to, you know, and in Bruges, it's, there's no flashback. There's no depiction of it, but we have uh, Brendan Gleeson's character talking about his wife being murdered and then, you know, Harry basically taking revenge, taking his wife's revenge. And that is so well acted and it's so subtle, but it also, you probably don't pick it up the first time, but you definitely pick it up upon rewatching it. And then it really like adds an incredible dimension to how you understand that character, you know? Sure. And it doesn't take much. That's just a few lines of dialogue and a few, um, I don't know, backstory that, that they didn't even have to like shoot and cut into the movie. And this, there's, there's none of that. You're just kind of like, well, he's depressed. And then when Colin Farrell points out to him that he's depressed, he's like, no, no, it's just because you're a dumbass. It's not because I'm <laughs> depressed that I want to end this friendship. And there's probably truth to both of us. But I'm just like, okay, well, it's hard for me to make an emotional connection to, to Colin's character. It's hard for me, like Padraig is clearly meant to be, uh, you know, a very just slow kind of like stupid character. But then he has this kind of nice moment about talking about like, oh, we remember those people who are nice and my parents were nice and I remember them and I'm nice. And, but he's, it's, a, it's, he doesn't feel, he feels like a caricature. He doesn't feel like a human being in this movie to me. He's just like, here's a character caricature of like a stupid person we're supposed to laugh at. It's not like an in Bruges where he's, there's a, he's a little slow and he's a little dim and he's silly, but there's so much guilt and there's so much grief and there's like something to really hold on to, I feel like, in the in Bruges character. And also, that's like one of the funniest characters I've ever come across. And it really leads to like a really good chemistry because Brendan Gleeson's the straight man in that movie and then Colin Farrell's the, you know, wisecracking like just present and there's like tension there whereas here it confirms this annoying <laughs> no i mean i think that's you're getting at two things i think one of them is that martin mcdonough is not doing himself any favors by like limiting or focusing on a character that's dull like you would say because you're immediately limiting what dialogue you can really build into the film which is like what he's great at like what makes Martin McDonough movie so rewatchable and fun is like the dialogue is brilliant and witty and funny and weighty. Um, and so when you're like, there's a, a line, I don't know exactly what it was, but he, I mean, it gets the point across where he's like, Oh, that's, that's great. And then he's trying to think of a synonym and he can't think of it. So he just says, that's really, really great. And it's like showing that he, he couldn't think of a synonym. He's always, he's just not very bright. And it's like, okay, it works. And I think it's probably even realistic as to what this person would actually say, but it's just like, not a clever way of showing that. Um, and I did, I actually think it's, it's a, as if you were limited to these characters and you kind of had to build out a film on these themes, it would be very difficult to build something more, but it's just a very kind of limiting exercise in what 
makes Martin Redonich's films great. But that being said, I did, there were a lot of things I think I found really enjoyable that we haven't really talked about. But I do think, I mean, if you're comparing it to his other movies, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, hold up nearly as well. Although, yeah, I mean, so, I'm going to have to see it again at some point, but I, I really don't want to, but I'm going to have to uh, because I'm sure, yeah, there are things I missed as well. Yeah, so I have one follow-up comment to that, and then we can talk about what we liked about it or what, like, sure, worked. Sure, you know? and you can And you can try to convince me that it's better than I think. Okay. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head with uh, it's a limiting... He He seemed to have purposefully limited the parameters of the story world he built and then yeah. operated by the rules that he gave himself which usually works right like we don't want uh part of the reason game of thrones season eight is bad is because it started breaking the rules of the story world that they built seven seasons around right mm-hmm. and so like you want to abide by whatever rules uh you're creating in the story world that you're building However, when you limit yourself to this degree, you've got to be like a really, really incredibly talented uh, writer. And I think Mar McDonough is one of the most talented screenwriters of his generation. However, he limited himself to the point where uh, there was only one way through, and that way was being like, yep, this is... This is uh, this is what happens when um, a country goes to war with itself, you know. And I just um, it reminds me of David Foster Wallace's last kind of uh, book he was working on when he died, and then it was published posthumously. It's called The Pale King, and it is set at a, an IRS branch in Peoria, Illinois. And all the character in like the mid '80s, and all the characters are IRS accounts um, at this branch, and that's like the day-to-day action of the book is, you know, filling out, verifying tax returns, and then going to the bar afterward. And these characters like talking about their lives, and then you get more about these characters like upbringing, childhood before they got to the IRS, and why they're doing this job. And it and the book's about boredom essentially. And so if you're David Foster Wallace and you really want like the most, the, the, the biggest challenge you can uh, in trying to write the next great American novel, that type of setting and that subject matter and that topic of writing about boredom is, it kind of doesn't get harder, right? Sure. And I'm wondering if McDonough is like, you know what? I've been nominated for Best Picture. I've won an Academy Award. <laughs> Like, how can I continue to maybe challenge myself to, to make this more interesting for me? Because, yeah, I can set a movie in L.A. In LA and make it one of the funniest movies of the year, but I've done that and I kind of want to do something different. So maybe that was part of the motivation for making it so limited. I don't, I don't think he pulled it off, but let's pivot to talk about what you really liked about it. And you can convince me that I'm wrong. Well, I think what stands out and what will be talked about most is Colin Farrell's like leading role. Because he's left with so much to do, I think you're pretty much leaning on the actors. It's it's because it's basically a, you know, a, themat- a theatrical release. It is basically a play with a like a leading man, and I think he's great in it. I think he totally embodies the character. I mean, Colin Farrell's great in everything he does, but I do think he'll get Oscar nominated and he will absolutely deserve it. 
Um, I thought the supporting characters were also terrific. Um, even when they had less to do, I thought Dominic um, was great. I thought Siobhan was great. Um, some of the other minor characters were like interesting touches, but nobody that really, you know, jumps off the pages outside of those kind of core four people. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's one thing. I don't know, what, did you have any comments on the acting itself? Fantastic. Yeah, I thought I thought terrific. all the acting yeah. I thought all the acting was was great and everyone's really well cast. I thought Barry Keegan as the village, you know, kind of dunce was yeah perfect and hilarious and like he did such a great job with it. Agreed. I thought he was really good. Um, stood out to me um, certainly as like a talent. I mean, he's pretty good in everything he's in as well. Um, other things. I mean, I think the the thematic stuff. I think there's some interesting comments. I think the other thing, so the, I mean, the main theme to me was the civil war kind of relational breakup. There are also other bits of commentary that I think were interesting. I think the the main character's kind of justification, or not the main character, but the Brendan Gleeson's character's justification for why he's decided to break it off, even though you know he's always been dull, is essentially, like you said, like building his legacy for after he's gone. And I think the discussion between the characters, even though it's brief, was interesting in trying to get at some of the more thought-provoking questions that aren't necessarily answered or that aren't necessarily kind of given the space that I would have liked. Um, and I think that's what he gets at in some of his other films as well. Like Seven Psychopaths has a lot of ideas um, and I think it's very thought-provoking. And I think some of these side stories about why people choose, why you get depressed or when you get older and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, what are the options that you have and what are kind of the selfish options or what really matters to you? Is it about legacy or is it about, you know, being remembered by fewer people, but being remembered the right way. I think those are really interesting comments and I enjoyed thinking about those during the film and kind of after the film. I, I don't know if I'm just like cold and heartless. I, I don't really ever um, kind of buy into like animal driven emotional side stories. <laughs> Like, yes, it was sad uh, when the donkey died, but that just doesn't really work on me in film when animals are like the center of a, a key scene like that. Um, so that didn't really work as much for me. But uh, I think the overall kind of weighty thematic elements definitely made the movie stick in my mind and made me think about some of the larger themes more than, you know, the same type of film made by you know, a less impressive Artur. That being said, it definitely didn't have the same lasting impact that something like his, his better stuff would have. Yeah. Um, I think we needed, to me, it felt like a two act movie and I really wanted a three act movie. In the sense of halfway through, we have this shocking mutilation and it pivots the trajectory of this story. And I think we needed, I think that should have been more like a third of the way through. And then we needed a big inciting incident two thirds of the way through. And then a really interesting last, that would set up, set us up for a really interesting last third act, right? So, like, him burning down Brendan Gleeson's house, it's like, okay, yeah, I didn't necessarily see that one coming, but he also didn't kill him. 
so it's kind of like all right well so they're just kind of kind of make peace even though he just burned down his house but Brendan Gleeson survived and then the movie ends maybe if there's another half hour and Brendan Gleeson gets killed and Podrick like has to grapple with killing his best friend and Maybe there's something interesting there, you know, like, I don't know. It, it I just... think that's where the, like the theme takes over from the enjoyability of the film. Cause I think the point is that like civil war or like these types of things are unsatisfying. Like no, there's no victors, right? That that's kind of the end. Everyone's dissatisfied. Everyone's hurt each other to such a degree that there's never any potential future for kind of reconciliation. And I think that's the point, but it doesn't necessarily allow for like a satisfying conclusion. And I agree, maybe there could have been a twist that allowed that to remain thematically while also providing something to spur the plot along or at least to keep the, the readers or the, the viewers engaged. Because it did, it did drag a bit in the second half. Um, I'll agree with you there. Yeah, I think I just wanted one piece that wasn't in the trailer. How many fingers <laughs> you want him to cut off, Eddie? How many fingers? <laughs> huh? Six fingers? Seven fingers? When are you going to be satisfied? Jeez. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's like it starts out as kind of like a slow comedy and then turns into like a a drama, you know, of a mutilation. And then it turns into just like a ham fisted like horror comedy with Brendan Gleason continuing to cut off every finger he has until he's just handless, you know? That would have been good. I actually would have preferred that, I think. If, if I just think kept I going. would have too. He just, like, or like it flashed. What if it, at the very end it had flashed forward and like they're still hanging out, but he has like no legs and like no <laughs> arms. <laughs> I want, because that's kind of how Seven Psychopaths is. That's yeah, the tone yeah, yeah. of Seven Psychopaths. And I think it works. And it's kind of, it's, it's bold. Like the tone of Seven Psychopaths is a very bold movie. Like there's jokes in there that you're like, whoa. <laughs> But it's hilarious. But it, it's almost like, oh, wow, he got away with this. Like, you know, nice. The quote I use from that movie all the time is when people are like, eye for an eye. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. The, the whole world, there'd be one guy with his eye left. There's nobody to be around to stab out the last guy's eye. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Yeah. No, it doesn't. <laughs> there'd be one guy. With one eye. So good. I yeah, brilliant. It's this is making me so Sam Rockwell makes Seven Psychopaths. He just makes Sam Rockwell is so good in it. He's I that should have been his Oscar. Yeah, and I'm and as you're saying that, I'm thinking of this is off topic. Not that we're ever allowed to get off topic on this podcast, but um, this has been a tight forty five minutes. I I rewatched Knives Out recently, and it's a fun movie. And I think it's good, but Daniel Craig is good in it, and I like him in it. But he's so over the top; it's like kind of hard to watch at some points, you know. You can and tell I he's think, having such a good time, though. Yeah, totally. I think Sam Rockwell would be a better LeBlanc. He would be good. I mean, Sam Rockwell in any like over the top role is going to be really good. He's yeah. hilarious. Um, should we talk should we about Andor? Andor? Yeah, I was going to say let's switch to something that we both really enjoyed as a to end this out. Yeah. 
People, yeah, if you I want, just I wasted want 45 people, minutes of your life listening to this and you haven't seen Andor, there's nobody, just there's go nobody check your priorities. Guaranteed there's nobody still listening, but let's just continue on. Like, um, you know, like the... Gilroy. He's been waiting. He's like, what do they think? He's going to make me listen to this entire uh, podcast on Banshees of Inner. Well, it's, it's a bummer because I, I do want people to watch Banshees of Inner in so that I have more people to talk about Mar McDonough with, but no one, I don't know. Anyways, we might have Andor. a better bet getting them to watch Andor. So, Andor's, dude, fucking lights out. Are you kidding me? It's it's the best show on TV right now, and I don't think it's close. I don't think it's of even three, close. Yeah, of the three big shows that came out in the last couple months, which was uh, Oh my God, House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones one, Rings of Power, and Andor. Andor is so clearly better than those other two shows. It's not it's even it's not even comparable. Like, yeah. I would be so embarrassed if I were the showrunners of House of Dragon, which, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like the Game of Thrones prequel, and the abominable Rings of Power, which is the Lord of the Rings spinoff. Um, if I were the showrunners of that, and I watched Andor, I, it would just depress me. It would it, like show me how much I got wrong and how much you can do with a big budget and a ton of pressure, and a and like a rabid fan base. The thing All is, I think they series. have. It's, the budget is way smaller for Andor. Like I think those other two shows are probably at least double the budget of Andor. Dude, I look. I I don't doubt you. I but I look at Andor and what they did and what they build. And I'm like, holy shit, guys! Like, well done. I I like, genuinely like. I know we're being facetious, especially people who hadn't haven't seen it. It probably sounds like we're exaggerating, but I I legitimately think that the worst episode of Andor, which there's been ten episodes, is is more entertaining and enjoyable than the very best episode of either of those other shows in the first. This is not even close. For yeah. Me. Yeah, it's not even close. So Andor, for those who don't know, um, Rogue One was a. Star Wars kind of prequel film that came out in 2016. Let's go with it. Nobody's going to fact check us on this. Yeah. 2016. <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, the premise of, of uh, Rogue One is uh, Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, is this Han Solo esque uh, kind of smuggler, you know, out for himself, but anti empire, but not super pro rebellion. Um, guy that gets kind of recruited into this resistance cause and then he and uh you know the british girl with the cheeks <laughs> what's her name the girl with the cheeks uh i don't know her name off the top of my head it's, it's something like that doesn't sound like a real name like uh april something is it april something <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we were going to be going Rogue One. I didn't. I don't have my prep on this. Sorry. So they team up and uh, they steal the plans for like the blueprint of how the Death Star is made, and then they smuggle those plans to eventually Luke Skywalker. Oh, we're going to make Rogue a movie one. out of this small detail. It's the best one. Like there was a clear hole in the original Star Wars trilogy of like, wait, why did they build this entire thing with this like, massive vulnerability? And they like pretty satisfyingly explained it. I thought. Felicity Jones. Ah, that's not even close to April, but it is a yeah. funny name that doesn't sound real. So the yeah. first part was right. So, uh, so yeah, that's Rogue One, and uh, and I li- I really liked Rogue One. I thought it had some kind of weird kinks to it, but I thought it was good. 
And uh, so when they announced that they were kind of doing like a series about the the kind of protagonist, uh, Cassie Nandor from Rogue One before the events of Rogue One, I was kind of like, oh, maybe it'll be interesting. I don't know. I think that the difference, so just some background for people who don't really follow Star Wars. They've also made like three really not great movies and a bunch of shows that are like all aimed at like 13 to 18 year olds if that so this was like the pitch was essentially like what if we really upped it and made it a dramatic adult version of star wars which does not really exist as of now yeah that's a good point yeah Yeah. totally and um so i was like oh the premise sounds kind of interesting we'll see you know uh keeping expectations low and then i saw the trailer and i was like hell yeah they nailed it. <laughs> the trailer's great. If you want to know to the tone of the show, watch the trailer and tell me you're not pumped. I well, will I just, personally w- pay you $5. If you watch that trailer, you're like, that looks terrible. So, what I loved about Andor, so there are 10 episodes in and there's 12 to my 12, yeah. of the season. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple more to go. But what I love about Andor is that I feel like they nailed, um, how would I put it? Yeah, I guess the... Hmm, the tone setting the world, it's very tactile and it's very practical. And that's what I really like seeing in movie making and like TV shows. It's when it's not just some green screen in Atlanta where they just have these guys for weeks and weeks. It's like they're building all of this stuff. And that's what originally made Star Wars special. And it's what made, you know, the movies that we love, most of them special is all these like practical effects and these worlds that you can like walk through. And that's what that's made, why Rings of Power makes no sense because Rings of Power supposedly has like unlimited funds but it somehow still looks like somebody drew it like yeah like 20 minutes before the show started i'm like that's not like if you have unlimited funds why would like uh, i don't understand that decision at all that doesn't make sense to me so i just when i'm watching and or i've i haven't read anything about their production or like i haven't seen you sent me an interview with tony gilroy or there so i'll listen to that but um i don't know anything about how it was produced or what went into it but if I were to guess, I would say that the writer's room was operating on a few, and the just production design was operating on a few rules. One of those rules being, we're going to shoot everything on location, which sets a huge you know, uh, tone for the show when you're like, all right, these are going to be real locations we're going to film in and, and, and map it out and storyboard and you know, for the cinematography. It's like stunning, you know? And then the sets, I imagine just just looking at them when they're in the prison or when they're you know um, in uh, on that like forest planet, it looks like they just built so much stuff, you know, like built all these sets. And it's very that, obviously that there are like lots of practical. Yeah, you're like get on with it. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 Um, I'm saying that's like it's very like, which yeah. is amazing considering like they're not like simple practical effect like no this entire they go to like five different worlds in these episodes so it's not like it's constrained but somehow they're still pulling it off i think the prison episodes are a great example of that like you could have made that prison i think on on the watch podcast they talk about how like every character has like different shoes when they're in the prison and stuff and there's just like minor details like that that are so obviously like center of mind um i think one of the interesting things that Tony Gilroy says in that interview is that they like had the the production designers and the 
like costumes designers and stuff sit in on all the writing sessions. That's cool. Which I don't think is very common. Um, and so they like have a really good sense of the world that they're trying to build and are kind of like a part of the process. I mean, I think it shows like it, it does like seem lived in, even though of the three, like Star Wars shouldn't necessarily feel more human than like Game of Thrones, which is essentially set in like the 1400s. Star Wars is set in like, like it says, like a galaxy far, far away. And it somehow feels more real and it's easier to associate with the characters. Yeah, 100%. And I think um, what really frustrates me about those other shows, I made it two episodes and like 10 minutes into episode three of Rings of Power. And I was like, I can't, I can't take it. This is torture. <laughs> like this is... That show's super is, slow. I, I feel like the first... It was grueling. Season, could have been summed up in like four sentences like not a lot happens that entire i i hated every moment of it and part of what i hated about that and also house of dragon which i was excited for because i just finished eight seasons of game of thrones i was like wait there's new game of thrones hell yeah (laughs) this is perfect timing and then it was just the most boring underwhelming and part of what made I think both of those, one of the many elements, I mean, both of those series bad was that you couldn't ever figure out what anyone's motivation was for doing anything they were doing. And in Andor, they do a really good job of being like, here's, here's why this person hates the empire. Here's why this other person who's in, who's pro rebellion and the ally of this person hates the empire, but it's a different reason. And it's also emotional and it's also understandable. And it's also something you can relate to. So it's like everybody has their personal journey for anti-imperialism and then they find each other and they're all suspicious of each other's motivations and suspicious of each other because it's such a high risk covert operation and none of us, none of them knows, seems to know each other like super well. And so all of their, they're only banking on each other's mutual hatred, right? Of this entity yeah. and of this oppression. And so it makes it really fascinating because there's this like ambient tension throughout the whole, in addition to the tension between like, you know, our heroes and the evil rebellion, there's this tension between the heroes where they're always suspicious of each other and reasonably so, you know? Yeah. And I think so, like, that's the, the reasons that it succeeds on kind of this broader level. I think if we dig down into some of the like actual plot points as well, like the the seriousness with which it takes the Empire is I think second to none in the Star Wars universe. Like the fact that like it just seems for some reason, even without like there's some stormtroopers, but they aren't really interacting with the characters. There's no Jedi, there's no Darth Vader. Somehow this is by far the most terrifying version of the Empire I've ever seen. Like, it's 100%. not even close like th- this is by far the most i mean i think if you watch like other star wars movies you come away with like i mean it's a unironically people come away from it being like well the empire was it that bad <laughs> like you know you had good healthcare plans the death star seems like they got great construction <laughs> when you watch yeah. this and you're like oh man like the depths and the, the the tendrils of the empire taking over people's lives and like messing with people's free will is so ingrained it really is about the like the banality of evil within this bureaucracy that has come to take over you know different separate worlds and totally destroy everything from culture to society to kind of political diversity i think it's so well done 
as is the kind of depiction of what it takes and what it, you have to give up to start a rebellion. I think in the, the most recent episode, the speech given where he's, he's talking about what you have to, to give up to fight the rebellion and the tension between being kind of a good person. I think a lot of movies about rebellion are like, oh, these people are great and like, they never have to sacrifice anything and they can take down the bad guys without sacrificing any moral standing. This is definitely not that. This is, you know, you have to kill and marry off your daughter and lie to everyone you've ever known. And even then, your chances of success are, you know, finite. I think that's a, an amazing thing to see on television is is a much more like realistic version of this David with Goliath story that we've had for, you know, 50 years. I'm glad you brought up that speech because I was going to talk about it too. I was so, so... um to put it very succinctly, Cassie Nandor, the kind of, uh, you know, Diego Luna character, uh, Han Solo, he's our protagonist. He's been separated from his sister since they were kids because their home planet got massacred by the Empire. And then he was kind of saved from it by uh, these rebellion people. And then he was kind of raised by this woman um, who he... It's basically his surrogate mother. And then so we pick up with him when she's old and he's an adult. And uh, we see just, uh, you know, him getting in deeper and deeper trouble with the Empire for reasons that are beyond his control, you know? Yep. And so he gets taken up into this resistance rebellion kind of reluctantly. He does not, he doesn't see himself as a hero. He doesn't want to be a part of this. And the the leader of this rebellion is he's just like uh, he's like Stellan oh, the gas, He's a classic like oh the the gas prices are a little high you know don't bother me about this other stuff just want to live yeah. my life <laughs> yeah so exactly and so Stellan Skarsgård is like the kind of leader of this um, resistance and he's well connected you know he's he's getting money from politicians who are also kind of covertly pro resistance and he's coordinating this network that on the, all these different planets and, you know, have, having these insurrections happen and all this kind of thing. And so he's, he's the man at the center of it. And he's the one that the empire is trying to track down. They're saying it's like the axis of all of this. And so he's the guy that you're talking about made this speech to one of his double agents who is like close. His name is amazingly Lonnie. No, Lonnie. Yeah. So Lonnie wants to wants to pull out. He's like, "Hey, I've got a kid now." Like, Lonnie I'm... doesn't pull out. That's why he's got a kid. <laughs> yeah. <now>. Yeah. <laughs> True. Lonnie never pulls out. So he's like, "I I want to like this is getting too high pressure. Like, I there's too much at stake. Like, I can't do this anymore." He's like, "Let me out of this." He's just, you know, and Stellan Skarsgård's like, "Sorry, you oath, can't. Dude. He can't. You're trapped." And he's like, "I know." And he basically. This whole speech is basically like, I know that I'm using instruments of evil to take down this evil. And yeah, I know that I'll use be... the tools of my enemy. Yeah. He's like, like, I know I'll be damned for it. And I know that you hate me. And I know I'm not going to be remembered. And I like all of these things. And he's like, because <laughs> Lanny's like, look how much I have to sacrifice. He's like, and he says, what have you sacrificed? He's like, motherfucker, what have I sacrificed? <laughs> and then he just goes in this monologue. But it's a really, it's a, it's like you're saying, I'd never heard that from a character before in any 
book or film or, or art. And I was really moved by it. I was it's fascinated by somebody who has to give up. It's not just giving up everything. It's giving up everything with very little hope of like your legacy and the work that you're doing, it's tar- even being recognized to, or remembered. I think that's the thing. A lot of people are willing to sacrifice themselves as martyrs if they can be remembered, you know, as champions, but not a lot of people would be willing to sacrifice themselves and tarnish their reputation just for a cause. Like totally. that is a, that's a whole nother level of selflessness that we don't see depicted because it, it's, yeah, it's beyond what we can kind of grasp. Well, it's kind of, um, I think if you're, you know, if you're a martyr like Joan of Arc or like, um, I don't know, in that milieu where what you're doing is clearly like morally right and it's courageous and you die for it, Mm -hmm. then I think there's potentially, it's, I don't know, it's never easy to be a martyr, of course, but there's a rationale that history will remember you by for what you did and the actions you took. It's at least this, some this reward. Guy is, it's, it's a pittance of a reward compared to what you give up, but it at least yeah. is some reward. This guy is saying like, no, yeah, I know that in a couple of days by withholding the information we are, like 50 people are going to die and we're going to have to betray this guy who's been working for us. And that's just the beginning of it, you know? Yeah. Like we're currently trying to kill Cassian Andor because we can't trust that he's not going to leak information and we just like, I just promised him 200 grand, you know, (laughs) like this guy is definitely, I don't know. It's hard to, he's a complicated person. Yeah, He's not like, I think most of the time, like the, the good guys are like, we have the moral high ground and he's saying like, no, we have to give up the moral high ground to compete. Right. (laughs) Like that's, that's rare. I almost think we should, I mean, uh, like have a whole nother episode just about like the ethics of rebellion and how it's depicted in Andor as a separate episode. Because I feel like this is probably more interesting than our discussion of the Banshees of Inertia. But we can maybe we can do that next time. Nobody probably made it this far anyway, so we can we can talk about this over again. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I have another two and a half hours that I was planning. <laughs> We should we should do that. We should Joe Rogan this podcast sometime and do a three and a half hour episode. I don't know how people have time to listen to those. I like, even when it's on subjects. Oh, I have, Rogan, but like when I, I listen like to the, uh, Pete Holmes's podcast, it's when I'm on a road trip or when I'm traveling, it's yeah. great to have two. The ringer, episodes. like the ringer has like three people that talk about episodes of TV that I like. And one of them is like deep dives. I don't know if you've seen these mm. and they come out every week for multiple shows. And like, that's like nine hours of content for like, three like if you watch the shows and then listen to all those podcasts it would be like a day worth of work every week i, I refuse to believe that people yeah are worth it doing that. <laughs> i'm like i don't i want to see the like viewership data like no i way. think uh, and i actually I think, like those like i really like the people who do the deep dives on the ringer i just yeah. don't have three hours to kill to like listen to or yeah their take on these things yeah so as we're wrapping up talking about andor a couple other quick things the screenwriters and it's telling because one's Tony Gilroy who wrote, you know, the Bourne series and uh, or I should say the Bourne series except for the latest one, which is garbage. And he wrote um, Michael Clayton, among other yep. movies. Yep. And then uh, Bo Willimon, who was the showrunner for House of Cards, is like mm-hmm. one of the main screenwriters for Andor too. And like these guys really, really know like corporate politics. They really oh, yeah. know, you know, how, 
like departmental politics work and like silos between departments and depict mm-hmm. that in the empire it's like so fascinating they like nail it they they tow a really fine line between like realistic and it being super boring like it's somehow realistic and interesting which i thought yeah. was impossible <laughs> mind-boggling yeah so that i've a huge amount of respect for andor's dope andor's dope if anyone made it this far go watch andor even watch it again twice so there you go and then send us a message and be like thank you very much you saved me dude it's so the empire everything is just so well thought out even the uh um the score is like oh my god the score is so good i listen to it when i study because it's amazing dude and then I, I just Googled uh, like Andor and it popped up with all the people who made it. And the composer, of course, is Nicholas Bratel, who also did Succession and did like a ton of movies. Like the guy's a genius. He did the Succession Brilliant. theme. Brilliant. You know? The, yeah, dude, there's one episode, I think when he first gets to the prison or maybe it ends with him getting to that like beach city. Mm, and yeah. there's a bunch of like percussion and it's like, fascinating it's so cool to like listen to that like score it's like a little rock and roll and you're like whoa the score is really good everything about the movie is really good or the show it's incredible so good so good well, dude should we wrap this up i think we need to do a whole nother podcast on andor and then like rebellion more generally yeah, i just want to watch andor now dude go watch andor i actually watched uh, the 10th episode for the second time earlier today so i'm I'm freaking revved up and it holds up. Second time was just as good. I might have to rewatch it. Dude, they have uh, the the kid who is writing the Communist Manifesto, but for the rebellion. Yeah. I, is that so book going to come back? Nemec? I was like. I. It was published uh, yesterday. I just picked up a copy.